Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Annie. And I'm Turtle. And this is a podcast where we bring different worldviews together into conversations about science in Indian country. On today's episode, we dive into coffee. Definitely one of my favorite subjects. Oh, yeah. Every, every I think, educational student loves coffee. Mm. You know, actually, uh, my roommate doesn't drink coffee, but my other roommate loves coffee. <laughs> and from my experience, it's a love-hate relationship for a lot of people where people love coffee, but they hate that they it's addictive. Mm-hmm. They hate that they get crashes or that it kind of makes them feel crappy. Yeah. But I think... There's a. I'm curious what the stats would say on graduate students, <laughs> with their with their views and how much they drink right. coffee. So I know I drink a lot of coffee. Hmm. I, yeah. drink a I lot usually of have about three to five cups ish a day. Yeah, a day not like day. I used to though. I used to drink pots of it. That's and I don't crazy. think that's good, especially if it's really bad coffee. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that. Quality matters. Quality matters big time. And mm-hmm. so, how do you find good quality coffee? Mm-hmm. Where is it grown? And we talk about the history a little bit. And, and then Annie shares some really cool stuff going on in Puerto, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Yeah, on, on kind of how they're using coffee towards moving away from imports from the United States into becoming food sovereign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that I think that's probably the one of the cool takeaways from mm-hmm. this episode is that although coffee is not indigenous to Central America... I guess it's not really Central America. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of sort of that area. That, um, but it's also going on in Central America. Mm-hmm. This food sovereignty movement through coffee, yep. where it's a cash crop, so it allows them to make some money and it goes yep. back into the community and does some good things. Yep. So pay attention to where your coffee comes from. We like small scale farming. Mm-hmm. Indeed, we do. So sit back and relax. And we decided to go with a little bit of a different structure from now on. Mm-hmm. So we start off with a quick review from iTunes, and then we get into the Indigifact, and then we start talking coffee. Yeah. Coffee, coffee science. Coffee. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to start a little bit different. Um, we're going to actually read one of the reviews from iTunes that we have. Um, we haven't done it in a while, so we figured it'd be a good time to kind of start consistently doing it. Um, so... The one that we're going to read says it's an excellent and engaging podcast, and we got five stars. Um, and it's by Nincy Kaya. Nincy? Nincy. N-I-N-S-E-K-A-Y-A. Nincy Kaya. Hmm. I'm curious what the Nincy. Yeah, I wonder. Huh. Nincy. Nincy Kaya. It's got to mean something. It's got to mean something. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out, though. Um, so, and so the review was, it's a really great podcast by two graduate students, which discusses modern Native American issues. Um, Annie and Leja are doing some really great work for Indian country. Hmm. I, I kind of look at it that way. Like it's almost like a responsibility. That's a part of why we started it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's what we want to do. Now that's we, what we hope to do. We also, we're also very vain and we thought everybody would <laughs> would want to hear us talk everybody likes to listen to us <laughs> have talk. have conversations but yeah we, we all i know that i really felt like a lot of the things we were talking about in this program were really really important and a lot of the messages that i think aren't really being aren't reaching a mm-hmm. lot of people especially young people yeah so that was important to both of us right definitely and today's indigenous fact as not like usual, usually has nothing to do with the 
topic of the show, but today we're actually going to have our Indigifact on coffee, which Ooh, is... The lifeblood of grad students. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so to keep it facty or... Uh, in, Indigifact? Well, it's not that indigenous, but it's more on the fact side. It's, Ooh, it's statistics. But coffee ends up being indigenous by the end of this episode. Y- yeah. Indigenous Indian coffee, coffee science. Yep. Yeah. We're getting there. So the statistics, I, there's just, I got them from all sorts of different places, from the USGS, Gallup, as well as this, there's a cool site called Credit Donkey that Credit has, Donkey. yeah, it has a bunch of resources <laughs> cited. And I love, please, bloggers, put your references on there. Yeah. Because I mm-hmm. really like to un- know where people get their information. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always fun to like dive into it when you may want to know more about that subject exactly. too. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you want to do some extra reading. Yeah. Get I into mean, the literature. You always kind of like find that thing that catches your eye or catches your ear, I guess, when you're just like, I want to know more about that subject right there. Hmm, that's kind of a weird, the weird thing with reading is it's both because you're reading it. So you see it, <laughs> but you're, you're in your head. Usually you're like, there's a voice. Your little imaginary person in your head that yeah. we were talking about reading this morning. You, reading your, your, your books. <laughs> and so there's a, I can't, there's a lot of statistics on coffee. Of course. And there's a myth out there that it's the second most traded resource in the world, which turns out not to be true. It's more like in the 60s Mm. as far as how much it's traded. Dang. And the United States drinks more coffee than anyone in the world as far as like how much we consume. Yeah. But per capita, guess who? Uh... Hmm. Kind of surprised me. Really? Like the per capita consumption... Uh, Japan. Mm-mm. It's the Netherlands. Ooh. Yeah. That is surprising. And I, I have, have a Dutch that. roommate, and he hasn't been drinking coffee since he's he's here, but he says he loves coffee. And I <clears throat> I think that part of the reason he doesn't drink coffee here is because our coffee kind of sucks. Oh, well, he should go do some of these free... Fair trade coffees. Yeah. yeah. I was telling him that, yeah, if you look, if you know how to look, you can mm-hmm. find some pretty good coffee. Yeah. But you got to look for it if you Trader just buy Joe's random kind stuff. Of yeah. A good, yeah. kind of, if, if you go to the right one. But mm-hmm. I think that the more that I've, we've researched coffee, it's more like you have to buy from the people from a website that mm. you know specifically. If you find a good roaster, mm-hmm. you can ask them some questions and figure out a good coffee in your local area and mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about that later. The the fact though is just these all these crazy statistics. So in the United States or the US Geological Survey found that to make one cup of coffee it takes 35 gallons or about 132 liters of water. Wow. For one cup. And there's some other sites that said 37 but mm-hmm. I figure well USGS I used to work for them so I'll, I'll be biased <laughs> and go with their stats. And but for the world population, this is kind of crazy. It takes 120 billion cubic meters of water per year, which is I don't really know how to wrap my head around that. Yeah, but that's equivalent to one and a half years of runoff from the Rhine River. Do you know where the Rhine River is? It's, Rhine it comes out of Germany into the North Sea. I don't think so. I think that's the. I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Like the Rhine Valley goes up, no, it, mm-hmm. it flows kind of out of Europe that way. Mm-hmm. And the uh, so what's another way to think about that is that it makes up two percent 
of global water use for crop production. Hmm. And if only 2% of crop production yeah. is 120 billion cubic meters of water, how much is that like full full blown all crop production in the whole world? Right. How much water is that going through? It's something to think about. It's a lot of water. Yeah. And Dang. so as far as how many people drink coffee, there's so there I I found on this podcast you you were there when I heard it that yeah. that, that was kind of a crazy. I wasn't able to f- confirm this any every uh anywhere with any hard data, but the guy was saying that back in what was it 1967 or the 1960s that coffee was being consumed by 87% of Americans. Yeah. And that switched because of the advent of soda. Soda pop. Soda pop. Or not. I mean, it, soda was around before then, but it like became a mass marketed yeah. thing after World War II and especially in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people started drinking soda and coffee consumption went down. Nowadays, it's up to 64% drink one cup a day and 26% of people drink only, uh, oh, sorry. 64% of people drink coffee every day and only 26% say they drink just one cup. Hmm. So most people drink more, more than, than one. one cup. Yeah. Yeah. And that, uh, huh, this is kind of interesting that, um, this other article that I found on science direct said that 26% of coffee drinkers say that they're addicted hmm. to coffee. So over a little bit over a quarter of people that report to drink that they drink coffee every day say that they're addicted to, to coffee which it's not that high I, it yeah but i guess an addict wouldn't really admit it though either right <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that like i've i now i've realized that if i don't have coffee in the morning i start getting like that little caffeine headache mm-hmm. in maybe around like two o'clock in the afternoon where i'm like okay I i need some kind of caffeine to like just kind of ease this this headache that I got going on. Yeah, as I drink a cup of my delicious <laughs> Guatemalan coffee, which is one of the best places to get coffee in the world, depending Guatemala. on who you're buying it from. And the they're not the top producer, though. Guess who the top producing country in the entire world is? And back in the, I think, either early, 1800, early 1900s or late 1800s, they actually produced over 80% of the coffee of the world. Dang. But now it's not It's not even close to that. But um, they're still the top producer. Hmm. So if I had to guess, it's probably not the ones that I had because they're technically we're doing other it's a big, crops. It's a course. big country. Big country. It's large. Large, big country. Hmm. China. Nope. Makes no sense. But <laughs> <laughs> so coffee is produced primarily in like Central America, South America. <laughs> Um, Africa, like Eastern Africa area. Okay. One more guess. Arabia a little bit. Okay. Um, and then also like Southeast Asia. Brazil. Yep. That's exactly it. Yep. Brazil. It just took me a second. (laughs) Yeah. And they produce, and they've been, they used to have a monopoly on the market and now they contribute to 40% of the world's coffee production, which is still pretty huge. (laughs) And uh, Vietnam comes in distant second. So oh, they, they, they still dominate, but there's a lot more mm-hmm. diversity now. And that's interesting because I've never recalled buying coffee from Brazil. So I'm wondering if they're yeah. like the bigger productions. 
that mm. produces stuff for Folgers and stuff like that. Ooh, I didn't get that, that far be, into it. And yeah. I, honestly, this is really interesting and something mm. I've been interested in for a long time. But there's there's a lot. Uh, yeah. There's well, a lot of stuff. One thing that I have read up a lot on is that a lot of the coffee um, are plantation style. So it's a monocrop where they're just growing only coffee. And it's at large scales, like really, really small number of plantations that grow a lot of coffee. Mm-hmm. Where at? Um, the one that I specifically know is in um, Puerto Rico. But I know that it's kind of everywhere that there's a lot of large-scale plantation-style coffees. Okay. Um, there's, before we move on from the Indige effect which is uh more like in- indigenous stats or it's just statistics coffee statistics is coffee the, i came across quite a bit of conflicting information so i think that depending on what kind of method you're using and what data they're looking at and so i the the 64% figures and 26% those are coming from gallup and that it's a decent source but it's maybe not the best source that you should rely on completely just like for your numbers mm-hmm. and maybe look at other places and i found a a uh, an article on at harvard from harvard that actually said that 54 percent of people but they specified over 18 so when you look at statistics you really want to maybe ask yourself a few questions before mm-hmm. you decide okay this is the hard facts this is exactly how it is and there's no kind of uh leeway Hmm. is to just ask how did like what kind of framework or what kind of questions are they asking themselves are we going to only look at people ages 18 to 50 are we only going to look at people who drink at three cups a day are we going to look at everybody who reports drinking coffee or just focus on a certain part of the population and so I think that's where the differences in the numbers come from. So maybe the 64% uh, number from Gallup is talking more about like the the average for mm. like everyone. So anybody that reports drinking coffee. So that's 64% of the population says, yeah, I drink coffee. Maybe some of that percentage only has a cup, a cup maybe every other day even. And some part of them have three cups a day. Other people in that 64% have just a cup a day. Mm-hmm. So it's in, that's just a little statistics rule of thumb is to think about what do these numbers actually represent? Yeah. Instead of just thinking, okay, so this is the truth. And that reminds me of a Mark Twain quote and is a perfect way to end talking about statistics is he said, there are three kinds of lies in the world. There are lies, damned lies, and then there are statistics. <laughs> oh, statistics. Yeah. Now... Now that we've uh, gotten the three kinds of lies out of the way, let's talk about history. Because that, (laughs) I've met, I love history, but I've met a lot of people that have a very skeptical view of history. History. Yeah. That of the truthfulness of it. Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of it, you know, especially when you get to the age of where you don't have film and recordings and all that stuff that... It's just kind of he said, she said writing that I think that, I don't know. I think history is history, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the 
there's another thing to understand with history is they look at, I guess if they're a good historian, they mm -hmm. look at it in a similar way to how we look at problems mm -hmm. in natural sciences. They, they use multiple measures. They use multiple indicators. They use multiple variables yeah. to try and understand it. They don't just like read a guy's journal and say, yeah. oh, okay, so this is what happened. They look at anthropological data mm -hmm. like journals and anth actual anthropology reports from the past. And they also mix that with archaeological data, and then they mix that with even going to the place and interviewing mm -hmm. locals and getting their local stories about what happened and trying to understand it from as many perspectives as possible. And then they study that and try to come to – and that's how history textbooks mm – -hmm. I guess ideally that's how they're supposed to be written. Hmm. Yet there's definitely yeah. a political bias because yeah. in this country – I remember I remember the history textbooks from high school and the way they talked about the Civil War had me thinking totally different things than yeah. what I understand now. Well, I think even now, like I think the way that they talk about indigenous people in past tense, I think that that yeah. is history. another modern one. Oh, yeah. that's a weird uh, thing. I was reading an article about some quantum physics stuff and they're saying that the, their under, the understanding of time is starting to shift to a more holistic model where they're thinking mm. that actually the past is existing in the same at the same time as the present and it's always ex existing so yeah. it's more like a cyclical time and yeah. it's it's a, interesting and i really don't understand the math on it but it got me wondering yeah, about have, like how the heck do they come to those like they're using math to figure <laughs> this stuff out you need to watch a show called the oa the oa what's it, that stand for uh, it's her name. Oh, it, yeah. It, OA? It's the OA. Hmm. So, what is her name? OA? Yeah. Just it, OA? OA. Interesting. I, I, I'm I not going to tell you more. You can watch the show and learn why mm, they okay. call her OA. Um, it's well, on maybe Netflix. if I get to it, I'm, I'm really. People yeah. tell me to watch shows a lot and I almost never do. It's only like eight. It's only two parts. They're like eight episodes each. Not they're. It's okay. not like an extensive. Well, if you know what, if you send me a message with it, yeah. I'll be more likely to watch it. But it talks about that, like how there's a lot of dimensions that are all like in a cyclical time that affect the other Ooh. dimensions. Oh, it's that, that reminds me of that movie, uh, The Arrival. Have you seen that? It's about alien, like squid aliens. Oh, yeah. And they're all shadowy. And with the where one lands in Montana. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite movies. Isn't that the where yeah. it's the most of the plot plays out is in Montana? Yeah, it's it's where all of uh, it plays out. Yeah, um, that's very That's linguist. a really good movie. Yeah. I love it. I love how it was like a very linguistic based how how do you learn to talk to somebody who you don't understand any mm -hmm. of their language? Nothing at all. Yeah, and the whole point of it was they're trying to get through like, hey, yeah. time ain't linear, you guys. <laughs> it's a circle. So, yeah, with now that we got the linear time <laughs> argument out of the way, Let's talk about some coffee history. Yeah. So the the way the legend goes is coffee came comes from this place in Well, that's not right. I now I'm reading conflicting information. So the one I'm saying, having have in front of me here is talking about it coming from Arabia. And there's a shepherd named Khaldi and he's a goat shepherd and one day he saw his goats kind of dancing around and acting all crazy and mm -hmm. all hype, hyped up. <laughs> and he thought, what the hell is going on with my goats? And eventually he figured out, well, it's maybe it's this plant that they're hanging out mm -hmm. next to all the time. And so he tried it on himself and realized that the cherries of the shrub, uh -huh. and they kind of do look like cherries a little bit when you look at the plant and mm -hmm. when they're ripe. Um, and he 
he just tried some and experienced this quote unquote peculiar euphoria. Peculiar yeah. Euphoria. <laughs> and and so that's that's how it started. And yeah. since the and then monks and local monastery kind of started growing it and perpetuating it and eventually co- that's how coffee was born and now it's all over the world but it really took hold in the arabian peninsula and that's what i'm curious though because actually this other site which i think is probably more credible is the it's a the national coffee association they're saying a little different story they're saying actually that it's an ethiopian legend hmm. and that's not arabia so no uh but it's pretty close and so coffee they're saying that coffee can trace its roots all the way back to the Ethiopian plateau. And this the legend is the same though that there's this goat herder named Kaldi and he saw his goats getting all jacked up on some coffee beans. Yeah. And so he tried them out and realized, "Whoa, this makes me feel pretty good." <laughs> and started growing it. And local religious or abbot of the local monastery so he, that's, yeah, Kaldi, he reported his findings to the abbot of the local, local monastery. And I'm curious about that use of the word monastery because mm-hmm. back then there weren't really, there weren't any Christians in that part of the world. This is back before the 1400s, at least. The, the I couldn't find where the legend, like mm-hmm. the, a time where the legend comes from. But, but at least by the 15th century or the 1400s, it had spread across the Red Sea or whatever the isthmus is called there mm. at the very bottom to the Arabian Peninsula, to the Yemen area. Mm-hmm. And then it got established and within like a hundred years, yeah. it was across the Arabian Peninsula and through to Egypt and kind of the Fertile Crescent area in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And so that's where coffee, that's where it began. And that's who Dang. put it on the world stage really is uh-huh. the the Muslims back then because they're, they're that. Actually, that was that was a little bit before that time. I'm thinking of the Muslim Empire. Mm. That was like back. That was a long time before then. <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder how they they contributed to the spread of coffee, and, mm-hmm. and eventually it ended up in Europe, though. And but that, it took a while. It didn't get there till I think uh, what does it say here? The 1700s, which is kind of it's a long time. <laughs> it took 300, 400 years. For coffee to get from Ethiopia, Ethiopia to Europe. Wow! And now it's just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and what's funny though is, it it was try certain cultures and countries tried to ban it at some, certain points. Hmm. And in Europe, when it first arrived, some of the people were calling it the bitter invention of Satan, <laughs> <laughs> which is and the it, the some of the reasoning for banning it. I think there's one place that banned it and it was saying that the it stimulated some kind of thinking. Uh, <laughs> so it was the thinking and it was actually, it sounded really good, but I mean, we live in a different age now yeah. that actually. Where you kind of probably would want to do that thinking now. Yeah. Maybe not so much back then. Maybe that's why grad students like it so much. Yeah. <laughs> Helps us think. Helps us think. Helps us keep us a little bit motivated at 8 a.m. in the morning. So actually, here it is. It was that it it was believed to stimulate radical thinking and hanging out. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. And coffee hangouts are definitely, they were a part of basically every revolution. (laughs) And I found some historians talking about 
this idea that coffee may have been a very integral part of things like the French Revolution mm. and the Revolution in Russia and how these coffee shops would be places for intellectuals to meet yeah. and they'd talk about things and yeah that's kind of crazy yeah. cuz around the same time they're probably really enjoying like tea parties but it was like the idea of having like a different kind of liquid that <laughs> caused you to have radical thinking was a no-no but tea is fine yeah Tea was a big thing in England, and mm-hmm. they monopolized the tea industry for a long time. Yeah, because it crazy. was mostly grown in Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. India, China, and so for Eng- the English people to get their tea, <laughs> they really they they built a pretty big empire, <laughs> and uh, that that's a whole another story. Yeah, but no coffee. <laughs> I'm not sure. I didn't hear much about how popular coffee was in England or Great Britain, but it was. Definitely popular in all sorts of other places. And I'm sure it was. I'm sure it yeah. was. Well, England's a special case, though, because they kind of had a strange political system before the rest of Europe, mm-hmm. where they were they had like the bill, different bill of Rights before a lot of other people. They had like the Magna Carta was basically like the precursor to a lot of Bill of Rights documents that would later come in Europe and the United States. And it's kind of, it's crazy. And, and I wonder, though... Um, how that affected the thinking and maybe the English were like, oh, we're already radical thinkers. We don't mm-hmm. need to, we're already hanging out. We don't need coffee. We got tea. <laughs> and the, another one was that, uh, Frederick the Great in Prussia in the 1700s and 1746, he, he was, or no, not 1746. That's when Sweden banned it. And they, that was, that was a weird one. I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> In 1777, Frederick the Great of Prussia, he banned coffee, arguing that it interfered with the country's beer consumption. Hey, <laughs> which I thought was the best. I thought that was the best reason. That is, yeah, that's that's beer the best reason to ban coffee. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so, that's so funny, and uh, because in the United States they uh, they banned beer at some point. Yeah, but the United States was founded by puritans i mean maybe not i mean it's arguable it's founded by a lot of different value systems really and but puritans I yeah think puritans were the majority the, yeah they were the first yeah. really established colony there in the northeast at least uh that i know of i'm probably wrong on that too we're gonna have to do another <laughs> another correction reflections correction reflections and so after he, he which is interesting though because he continued drinking coffee himself <laughs> <laughs> but he's like nope. You. It's like no one else can drink it yeah. but me. He's just like hoarder. It's a stra- he's, a hoarder that, he's a strange figure. In some ways, he was totally great as far as I would define that word. Mm-hmm. An amazing ver- person that with really good values and stuff. Was, but in other ways, he was yeah. kind of insane. He was drinking radical coffee. I mean, he, maybe that's what was that, that was it. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> he became radical and great because he drank coffee. He drank coffee. So hey. It doesn't make you short, but it will make you radical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and yeah, so it's got a long history and eventually made it to the new world via the, via the British, bringing yeah. it in the 1600s and then la-di-da-di-da, now you get to today. But it, it's it's crazy how much it's connected to, to colonialism and to indigenous sovereignty mm-hmm. and how that in that it played a part in these revolutions potentially each one of these revolutions was fueled by coffee mm. well yeah i gotta keep them up somehow so i'm i know i want to do some more digging and i know there's a lot of 
I've heard come across lots of history about Russia and France, mm-hmm. but I haven't really found I haven't really studied other countries and how it had a role to play in the revolutions. I think we should have a coffee part two. Yeah, coffee Sometimes. revolutions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey. That'd be interesting. I'd love to mm-hmm. I'd like to learn more about that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um do we want to move into kind of myotoxins? Mycotoxins? Yeah. Oh yeah, mycotoxins. Mycotoxins. We can. That's that would that's like a really new thing. For the longest time nobody really cared about that. Do you, so mycotoxins. That's a fancy way to say mold mold, mold chemicals or mold poison. Oh, no, mold toxins, yeah. I guess toxins would be the right word. Mold toxins. And so mold is everywhere. It's it's on <laughs> it's it's, it's on you right now. It's yeah. on your skin, you're breathing it in <laughs> as we speak. Yet there are certain molds that produce certain toxins mm. that are really not mm. good for you. The, you don't, wanna, don't want you don't want to get too much of them. Yeah, and th- it can co- they can come from all over the place, and that's the main thing with coffee. That when they're mm. when they're trying to when they're producing it is to try to minimize the mold. Mm. And a part of that is because it has this husk on the outside of the seed or the bean that mm-hmm. is it's it keeps water out. But it also retains a little bit of water on the outside. Mm. And so when they're storing it, they have to store it in these breathable Bins. containers mm-hmm. and sacks. And and then the the whole processing process is to get the husk off of the bean without too much mold happening. Mm. Yeah. Dang. So what happens to you, I guess, if you consume too much of these toxins? Mm, all sorts of things, and I don't. I don't want to get into that too much. There's a whole. Yeah. There's an interesting documentary called Moldy. Mm, it was okay. made by this guy named. Uh, his name is Dave Dave Asprey. Okay, and he did this documentary partially because he's experienced mold toxicity and the effects of it. And it sounds like it's everything, and it's kind of one of these silent killers that people don't really see happening because i mean you can't see it yeah and um black mold people usually hear about that but there's other molds too that i mean any kind of mold growth in your environment is going to be releasing releasing spores Mm -hmm. and it's also going to be releasing these secondary toxins that molds produce as they do their thing that is they just make food for themselves and do what they do dang and so and it depends on which one too so Mm -hmm. the Hmm. What, what was your question again? What happens when you consume oh, too much? Oh, when you get too much. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I think the most common one I've heard of is chronic fatigue. Just mm. con- constantly tired. tired. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually your your health, your overall health declines more and more and more. And I've heard, heard on that moldy movie, some of those people were talking about how they would only be able to really move around for maybe two or three hours. Wow. And then they'd have to sleep the rest of the day to wow. recover. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I can't imagine what that would be like. And Yeah, I couldn't either. And and it really it also depends on how sensitive you are. Because some mm-hmm. people aren't really that sensitive to them and other people are hypersensitive. And yeah. over twenty percent of the human population though mm-hmm. is sensitive to mold. So if you're experiencing a bunch of symptoms where you're not you're just not feeling good chronically and mm-hmm. you feel like you're tired. Maybe you're getting these 
all these different systems in your body are mm-hmm. starting to decline. Like maybe your sleep health is declining. Your uh, energy levels are declining. Your bowel movements are all weird and like you have heart or lung issues and there's just so that's the that's why it's so hard to pinpoint and also doctors really aren't trained in medical school to identify mold toxicity Mm -hmm. so it's it's a really trippy thing and maybe 20 30 years from now we'll look back and be like dang kind of look back at it as like the asbestos thing like wow how could we have ever Mm. missed that and uh, it's just one of these things that is and it's really common and if you look at maps of the world uh, the united states is particularly bad for mold Hmm. And uh, uh, that's why European chocolate is so much better, is because they they have better mold standards standards oh. for the chocolate that they allow in their into their market. Hmm. And so specifically, though, there these two toxins. There's they're called mycotoxins, and there's this one called ochratoxin A, and the other one's called aflatoxin. So that's the ones that I'll talk about. And there's this study done. Uh, and I found this on the uh, NIH, the National Institute of Health. And I'll, I'll link all these different articles that I'm talking about. The They found that 91.7% of the samples that they found were contaminated with mold. But wow. That's a lot. Um, and uh, the samples that they did have that they uh, from this study, mm-hmm. the, it, it, the average was still below European standards. Oh wow! For so I mean, although they found toxins in pretty much all of the samples, uh-huh. the levels were below European standards, which are better than the United States. So it wasn't really, I mean, it Too wasn't alarming. it wasn't yeah. that bad if you think <laughs> about it that way. But there's another article on also from the NIH that has recommendations much lower than what they found, hmm. like uh, about half of oh, what wow. of what they found in these things. So yeah. although the standard standards. It's just think about the U the United States Department of Agriculture mm. and their standards and the fact that they just recently said margarine is not good for you. Whereas in in science we've known that for like sixty years at yeah. least. So don't rely on government standards for everything. They're often behind the science. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like to look at articles and what the researchers are saying, like, mm-hmm. hey, this is what we're finding. Yeah, well, I think just recently they're continuing to lower um, egg standards. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and so that's the problem with government is they ha- they can collect data on a little scale that like a small research mm-hmm. project really can't. But almost always is the data going to be politicized in yeah. some way or another. And it's either the what data, data gets gathered is led by political stuff mm-hmm. or how that data gets interpreted and reported out to the public yeah. could get skewed in some way. So then that that's it's tough to rely on government numbers. And I'm always skeptical, so I try to look at different uh different sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I st- I think it's important to look at the government stats because that gives you a, an idea of what the most powerful institution in the country yeah, is what they're thinking. Yeah, what yeah. what they're kind of seeing and mm-hmm. doing. So the mold stuff, mold. Um, yeah, to avoid it, I think the the main things to avoid mold in your coffee <laughs> is to just move out of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not- notoriously bad. I mean, the, the coffee here. Mm-hmm. And when I went to um, 
So it happened in both places. But when I went to Tasmania, that's when I first found out how crappy United this States coffee, coffee yeah. was. Because mostly because I tried their coffee. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, if down here at the thing near at the bottom of the planet, if they have better coffee than anything <laughs> I've ever tried there, then I mean per- basically everything there was better though. I mean the cheese, <laughs> the milk. The coffee, the ice cream. Yeah, it's because the United States has such low standards that they get away with putting in so much other extra preservatives and whatever into our foods that the quality isn't as well. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. To so I guess to avoid these uh, in your house, you would just you'd really just have to clean your whole house or move move out of the house if it's too bad. But mm-hmm. that's a big process. They, there's like whole like companies that specialize in cleaning molds out of houses. Mm. So, uh, and that's the only way it is to begin by getting rid of the mold in your environment and then by getting rid of the mold toxicity in your body mm-hmm. and then healing from all that. Uh, that'd be this three-step program to try to get mold toxicity out of your life. Cause I know it affects some people really bad and it can ruin some people's lives. I feel grateful that I have as far as I know, I probably have somewhat we've all probably experienced some symptoms just never really knew that it was the mold that Mm -hmm. was causing it not some other thing right but anyways the i guess the thing i wanted to get around to though is that in these uh with the aflatoxin and the ochratoxin a they're they're neurotoxins and ochratoxin a has been found to induce what's called oxidative dna damage where literally your DNA is being damaged and it's it causes mutagenic effects, which is like you could have mutations. Hmm. And and uh, they found that it's, car- it's a carcinogen. Same with aflatoxin. So, yeah, you want to avoid these things. And these are the two of the many that can be found in coffee. Hmm. And it happens because mold starts growing on poorly transported coffee or poorly processed or whatever hmm. the coffee is. And... Uh, the there's things I've learned over the years to avoid this, and I'm not going to cite do any citations for this because this is just my own personal knowledge yeah. that I've gained. Is shoot for high elevation coffee because the the beans are going to be more dense and flavorful, so that's a plus. But they're more dense and they're less likely to have to deal with mold, partially also because they're high elevations, so there's less mold. And then single origin. That that means it comes from one farm or a really small co-op of farms. Mm-hmm. And that is going to – really the, the reason why that's important is because it's all coming from one spot. You're not going to – it's not like a, just a shot in the dark about where your coffee is coming yeah. from. So you're more likely to have control of like, okay, I know these people are doing it right. So – and I'm getting all my coffee from them. So it's very unlikely that I'm getting mold toxins in my coffee. And then again, this is another tip, but plays on this last, that last one is small farms. Look for coffee from small farms and small co-ops, which is, we're going to talk a lot more about that here in a second. Yeah. And how that, those small farm movements can lead towards indigenous food sovereignty, which is really fascinating to me considering that mm-hmm. coffee comes from Africa and Arabia. Yeah. And it's leading towards food sovereignty movements. And another major thing to help avoid mold toxins in your coffee is oh so the reason for the small farms is because they 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 it, it just makes sense kind of you just think about mm-hmm. it they're going to take better care of a, a product it's not yeah. mass production coffee it's and they're able to have contr- more control over the quality of it yeah you can think about it as like generally probably 
the seeds have been touched by hands before, which I like love. I love the fact that when you have small scale operations, you know that the people that do it, do it with love and that they usually touch it and they usually make sure that it's like the best quality. Hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I think that it has to be harvested by hand. Because of the way the the beans, because they're not, they don't all ripen at the same time. Mm. So they, so that's they they hire like armies of workers. Yeah, Mm -hmm. to go in there and pick, and they don't get paid nearly what people on the retail end of it. The people Mm. actually selling the cup of coffee, what they're making in profit is puts. uh, It's oh my gosh, it's crazy how huge the difference. It's like a dollar a day or something. What it ends up being? Where did I read that? Somewhere in Chiapas, maybe. Where, yeah, the workers there maybe make 13 cents or something crazy where it's really not that much. But when you – that's why I think small farming is important because a lot of the small farming is either going to go towards their money or – It's going back into the community. Or it's consuming for themselves. And and that's how they get their money and their food is Mm -hmm. is they grow it. And I think that small farming is extremely important. Yes. And one last thing on getting good quality mold, uh, low toxin – coffee is to shoot for central america and the main reason for this is it's just experienced less environmental degradation than other places in the world mm-hmm. so if you follow that list and you can do this at your local roaster and just go find a good roaster that you like and ask them these questions like hey is this high elevation or single origin ask them about the farm where mm-hmm. it comes from and a good a good sign is if the roaster knows a lot about the the producer. Yeah. If they can tell you a lot about the producer and their story, that's a good sign that they care about their coffee mm-hmm. they're getting and they're going for high quality stuff and that's think, produced in the right way. I think it also shows that they care about the community that is getting their coffee for them too. Yeah. Yeah. That, and um, and then, yeah, Central America just to try to avoid the harsher parts of the planet. And besides that, uh, just – yeah, don't drink Folgers. <laughs> Not to knock Folgers, but I mean, it's that's the other end of the spectrum from the coffee we're talking about is mass-produced coffee that's mm-hmm. pre-ground. That's another thing is once it's ground, it starts oxidizing. Yeah. Or actually once it's it's oxidizing all the time, but once it's roasted, then it, it pulls – it expands the bean and then it starts oxidizing way faster. And now it's like a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Uh, and so the – the stuff you find often in stores has been pre-ground and it may have been potentially sitting around for months when the recommendation to get the best out of your coffee is to mm-hmm. drink it within 24 to 72 hours after it's been roasted. Dang. And that's like, wow. Yeah. Most coffee is not, that's definitely, even if it's right from the roaster, yeah, it's hard to um, get that. So generally I, I try to do it within a month, but even that. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's one too, is to look for a roasted by date instead of a best by. Mm-hmm. Because the best one is saying, okay, well, this is like the latest date you should consume this. Right. <laughs> Whereas roasted by, they're not afraid to tell you when they roasted it. Because yeah. they know that their coffee is good enough and popular enough that it's going to sell within a reasonable time of the roasting date. Damn. So yeah, all these little things and you can just put them all together and mm-hmm. you'll find some good coffee. Yeah, coffee's good. Yeah. Coffee... Is life. Oh, I <laughs> I, there was one point for about two years where I didn't drink coffee. And it was probably one of the worst two years of my life. <laughs> and I, a re- huge reason was I was experiencing probably some of that mold toxicity that I was talking mm-hmm. about earlier. Where So when in coffee, what could happen is it's the crashes. Yeah, those, those crashes that, are hard. That's, that's not really coming from the caffeine. 
it's coming from the mold toxicity. Mm-hmm. And the there's not just mold toxins either. There's other toxins from mm-hmm. the oxidation, oxidizing process that produces free radicals. And so you're drinking a bunch of free radicals if it's old coffee or if it's been sitting and it's Dang. cold. Yeah. So that's what causes the crash is not like caffeine because mm-hmm. caffeine is caffeine has a relatively long half life and you if you say you drink some coffee at n- like noon mm-hmm. that won't be completely metabolized out of your system until I think like 10 or midnight. Wow, that's crazy. Or maybe it's 8 hours. That's something I might be wrong on it. Mm-hmm. It's like between eight and twelve hours, but hmm. it takes a good a amount time. of time yeah. for coffee. Co- that's why they say don't drink coffee in the afternoon. Oh, it takes a while to get out of your system, hmm. and so it's those nasty chemicals that you're drinking with the coffee that's causing the crashes. Hmm. And then also the jitters, like drinking. I drink like three cups, maybe four, and right around that third or fourth cup, I'd mm-hmm. start getting those jitters that people. I'll, I don't yeah. know how many. I think pretty much everyone I've ever talked to about this has said, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. But, or some people drink, stop drinking it because of that, or they don't like coffee yeah. because they associate coffee with crashes and jitters. Mm-hmm. But again, that's not necessarily the caffeine. It could be having an effect, but it's also, again, it's those toxins that are in there that are yeah. irritating your body and specifically your liver. And it, causes, it gives you anxiety. <laughs> like literally your body's like... Get this out of me. That's and then again, like frequent urination, having to go pee right away. Mm-hmm. That's another sign that you you just put something toxic in your body, and your body's trying to get rid of it as soon as possible. Done. Get out of me. Yeah. And so I thought, man, I just can't drink coffee. And I, I was I was I was also drinking way too much. I was drinking like two pots a day. <laughs> and this so is my odd. when I was in undergraduate yeah. school, trying to stay up all night and stuff, not studying properly, but yeah. waiting and then staying up all night. All and fighters. then, but and I switched to. Cocoa instead, mm. and then I real and I realized like the one stuff I was drinking wasn't good and it wasn't it was like had sugar and all this yeah. stuff in it. So I looked into cocoa and started learning about that, and that's what got me into learning about coffee. And I found about out about mold and toxins, mm-hmm. and that cocoa has almost all the same problems with mold toxins that coffee does. And so I tried to get the best cocoa, and eventually <laughs> realized, wait a minute, there's something else going on here because it. The cocoa, if I got bad cocoa, that also did, had a negative effect on mm-hmm. me and it'd give me the jitters and stuff. Cocoa. Mm-hmm. And cocoa. so eventually I, I switched back and started drinking coffee again, mm-hmm. but I paid attention to what coffee I was drinking. Yeah. I think I'm going to start paying attention a lot more to the coffee than yeah. I Now I don't, I don't ever feel crashes. Mm-hmm. I don't get those jitters. And I, I also don't drink usually more than three cups a day, mm-hmm. but uh, some days I'll have five. And I don't yeah. feel I don't ever get those symptoms anymore, but I'm I only drink right like I'll go without coffee, coffee if I can't yeah. drink good coffee just because I know what it does to me. I mean I'm a huge fan of Dunkin' Donuts. That's just going to be my thing. Mm-hmm. But the personal coffee that I drink is different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're on the run, that's the, the yeah. I hear that. That's the that's probably the one of the biggest challenges to get over with coffee. any kind of food or habit change is what mm-hmm. do you do when you're busy and you're kind of rushing around doing yeah. stuff. And it took me a long time to figure this out. And I realized for me, what works best is just to go without. Yeah. Go without mm. fast on that thing yeah. for a day or for even just a couple hours, right? Because <laughs> usually that's all it's going to mean. Like, oh man, I'm so hungry. I got to stop at McDonald's when the reality is, is you could wait two or three hours. Right. <laughs> you're going to be perfectly <laughs> fine. Yeah. So yeah, this, this notion, this fast food culture, mm-hmm. that's a big problem. And I think a huge reason why 
the bad coffee operations exist in the first place is it's like a throwaway thing like you're trying to you're trying to get as much possible and quality isn't really mm-hmm. considered that much no it's definitely not i mean that's why i like duncan because i feel like it's cheap kind of never changing coffee that just is always there mm-hmm. um and well and plus it's a luxury because in montana are really actually like the northwest they don't really have dunkin donuts so now that I, we're back in a place that does i'm like all over duncan all the time oh man i don't think yeah okay. so that that's cool i mean I don't want to guilt trip anybody for drinking Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> coffee, but if you're experiencing some of those symptoms and you and you're really tired of that stuff, just try some of those tips out and maybe it'll help. And kind of thinking of the whole production, like how how it actually ends up in mm-hmm. the, the those cups there at Dunkin' Donuts. It's crazy. Do, do they use styrofoam or is it paper? No, they use flipping styrofoam and oh, it drives me yeah. nuts. Every time I get in, I'm like, mm. I just you need feel to go a little away. bit guilty every time, I, every right? Time, every yeah. time I have to throw away that styrofoam cup, I'm like, mm. And, every, and, and it pushes me more towards not going to Dunkin' every time. Those damn Dunkin' Donuts trying yeah. to guilt trip people into not drinking their products. Well, what's sad <laughs> is that people don't, probably don't even notice. They're probably just like, oh, no, I'm just Or you know away. what? I bet they're sitting around in a business meeting and they're like, you know what? I bet if we give them a little bit of extra anxiety, they'll want to come back because they'll confuse it with being high on caffeine and they'll think, man, that coffee's extra good. No, probably not. They're they're just yeah, trying to make money. They're I just think. trying to yeah. uh, follow their their thing, make, uh, make profit for their shareholders. Mm-hmm. That's their job. That's their job. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really love looking at cases that money isn't the first thing that they look at. Yeah. And so... Going back to the those small farm operations, it really wasn't about money, how this got started. Because nowadays, coffee production, like in Mexico and mm-hmm. other places, especially Central America, and we talked about Brazil earlier, they produce 40% yeah. of the world's coffee. So, but I think their situation is different than what might be going on in like Guatemala or Chiapas in Mexico, where it's these small farms. Mm-hmm. And... uh it's yeah. pretty cool because it's not an indigenous plant. It's not. And I think what I've come to realize is that um, a lot of people are using coffee as a form to become food sovereign. So it's not necessarily that they're growing it because it's a culturally and specific plant, but it's because it helps them to become more food sovereign in the long run. Hmm. That's kind of how I view hemp for us mm-hmm. up here. Is that it's not, it can, you can use it for food, like the seeds can be eaten and other things and it's good for all sorts of other products that you can sell, but it, it, it could help us become more food so- sovereign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it has the power to, to get you kind of into this small scale fair, fair trade where you're able to make some money where you don't have to go through multiple different people, mm-hmm. which all take a chunk of your money. And when you're already a small farmer who doesn't make a lot of money, who is providing for family and yourself. And um, I know in Chiapas or in, in that Mexico region that a lot of the small scale farmers have to travel by donkey and have to travel. They don't have transportation. So that's the cost that they have to think about is how do they get to these operations to sell their coffee. Mm. And and so there's a lot of like little transitions that if they want to maximize the amount of money that they can make. Mm-hmm. And and so I think it's really important for small scale farming. So, yeah. And speaking of transportation, the, to get from one of those small farms there in central America to 
your Dunkin' Donuts coffee cup or your Starbucks cup or the cup from your local roastery or mm-hmm. wherever you get your coffee, it takes a lot of different things to mm-hmm. happen. And it all starts with that native dude or native woman down there in the hot jungles yeah. of Central or South America or Southeast Asia or Africa, wherever you're at. But to, it has to be grown in really like relatively hot human mm-hmm. environment. Just plucking just one, pluck one, two, three <laughs> beans at a time. Yeah. And then all, eventually it ends up in your cup. But I don't think many people really consider about consider all the steps that it takes. And yeah. not only like you're saying, does is like each part of that process, there's somebody kind of taking a cut, mm-hmm. but they're consuming resources too to yeah. be able to do what they're doing to make that process work, whether mm-hmm. it's a truck driver or the person on the ship all the different people on the ship trying to maintain the ship and make the ship run or the customs agents, the roasters, the retail people there in the store selling the cop mm-hmm. cups, uh, the, the owners of the stores, the baristas. The, I mean, it's kind of insane when you really break it down how much actually goes into making one cup of coffee. Dang. Yeah, it's a lot. I, I try not to think about like systems thinking and kind of really what mm-hmm. happens when you turn on a light like i i have a systems uh, person in my family that will, will go through every single step that happens when you turn on a light switch and i'm like oh that's too much <laughs> like you overwhelmed me <laughs> yeah. way too fast <laughs> but it's so much like i mean it's just a little stuff that you don't think about anymore that it's like our luxury that we have here that you don't really think about how it gets there mm-hmm. and uh I think that's why I really, really liked um, this one article that I found, um, which is based in Puerto Rico, and and really how Puerto Rico wants to use agroecological coffee as a form to get their food sovereignty. And uh, I, being from the United States, um, I think that the more that I do research, the more I realized how... (laughs) Uh, how the United States has to work on a lot of things. And so this this article came out in 2018, so it's really new. It's like a really new idea that Puerto Rico and, and these small-scale farmers are really trying to push for. Um, and it's super interesting just thinking about Puerto Rico itself because in 2017 they had that really bad hurricane where I couldn't even imagine like what they had to go through. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I mean, we think we got a lot of wind in Browning. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Have, It's hard to comprehend what kind of wind hurricanes produce. Exactly. Well, then the fact that the United States didn't come to their aid, and, and that's what we were supposed to do. And so... Yeah, that's hmm, good old U.S. Yeah. And so I think that one one of the first things that happened in this this article is they talk about how intertwined... Puerto Rico is with the imports that come from the United States. And so the fact that when Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Maria, yeah, um, came and wiped out everything that their main food supply, uh, hold on. Um, So 80% of Puerto Rico's food is imported. And so, and a lot of it is coming from the United States. And so when you don't have those food imports coming in, how then do you feed yourself? So you're not food secure, which definitely means you're not food sovereign. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you need to be food secure first? 
Probably. Yeah, because you can't survive if you don't got food, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can for a little while, but yeah, that's very pretty. People start getting pretty weird once they haven't eaten for like two weeks. <laughs> people start looking really good at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, but there's a lot of people, especially these small scale farmers, that believe that 90% of their food can be grown on the island. And so there's like a really, really large push, um, especially when it comes to these agroecological farmers, which, which really focuses on agroecology. Um, and agroecology, I highlighted it. Highlighting. Highlation. Look at me. Um, So agroecology is an approach to agricultural methods and knowledge which allow farmers to develop farming practices which are sustainable, socially just, and provide for the economic interests of farmers. And this is kind of what is happening in Chiapas when um, Helda and Bruce came, where they talk about the same thing, agroecology, and really how then does that knowledge of farmers play into reconnecting to food systems? Mm-hmm. And and so what I really liked about Puerto Rico is that while coffee isn't a cultural food that's like bitter root to us or something like that, where it's like really culturally specific, but it is culturally important because it's one of the main cash crops that have been grown there because in Puerto Rico, a lot of the the coffee that is grown is large scale plantations that are owned by little companies, by by massive companies. I need to look into this, but I think Coca Cola is one of the large scale plantations in Costa Rica, mm, not sug- Costa Rica, Puerto Rico. For sugar? No, for coffee. Oh, really? Yeah. Coca Cola like, grows coffee. Coca Cola just bought a coffee company huh. in two thousand and seventeen. They're trying to, uh, yeah, they're, they're like, we need, we need to monopolize the caffeine that comes into this country. Exactly. All of it. We and, need all the caffeine. <laughs> they're just going to own it all. Yeah. And, and so when you think about it, one, one of the parts that I loved about this, um, kind of the reading that I wrote and because I'm, you know, mean smells, I love smells. One of the, the, things that had been mentioned was that coffee is also a smell and in a taste that has been present in the environment the whole time. Mm-hmm. So these farmers, like when I walked into the office and I smelled sweet grass and coffee, I was like, it's a smell that you, you recognize immediately. Mm. People can kind of smell what coffee is no matter kind of where you go. And it's just like this overwhelming smell of I don't know, a warm, yeah, roasty? That's like That's yeah. pretty much the best part of every single coffee commercial is yeah. when they go and they, they hold oh, their the cup with two, with two hands yeah. and they smell it. <laughs> it's in pretty much every coffee, co- any good coffee commercial has the somebody smelling coffee at some point. Right. And um, so what Puerto Rico is doing now is they're they're trying to figure out how to be food sovereign. So where they rely less on imported foods from the United States. And in the seventies, Puerto Rico started having um, food stamps. And so a lot of their food is just, and it kind of reminded me a lot of reservations about how now they're heavily relying on canned food, preserved foods, um, commodity foods. So they use, they don't use a lot of root veggies or granules. Um, so before this and before kind of commodities came in and food stamps came in, they were using 56% were eating 
uh, root veggies, 85% were eating these graduals. And then that was in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, those numbers switched to 33% and 10%. Hmm. And so there's like a really large, drastic change in the food systems that they're eating. And so a lot of these farmers are wanting to get away from um, these idea of monocrops and they really want to get into kind of uh intercrops so it's it's growing multiple crops in the same field while having kind of a crash crop so in puerto rico coffee is a cash crop mm. um it's not culturally specific okay. really um they use it just for money it's cool so of, so the farm mostly produces the cash crop and then they produce other stuff for food and for mm-hmm. subsistence yep that's really i like that and so a lot of what they need to do in Puerto Rico, which I'm probably going to follow from now on because I'm really excited to kind of see where they go. But a lot of it is politically changing the system. Oh, yeah. I bet. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of changing from relying heavily upon the USDA mm. <laughs> and which which regulates um, Puerto Rico, but Puerto Ricans can't vote. So a lot of the the laws that are enforced in Puerto Rico, they have no way of changing it. Mm-hmm. Because the only way that you could be Puerto Rican and vote is if you are in live in America, if you live in the United States. Yeah, that's interesting. There's the United States is one of the last countries that hasn't quite let go of all its colonies yet. Mm-hmm. And I mean, arguably France and uh, uh, I always get it mixed up. I want to say England, but that's not. It's the the United Kingdom, and then I'll say, oh, Great Britain. No, no, it's the United <laughs> Kingdom now. But uh, there, there's also like the the Falkland Islands, and there's French Guiana, Guiana, which I, I I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure it's still a French territory. Mm. So it's there's these there's these st- still we're still in the midst of the the colon, uh, colonization in the right. age of colonialism. So in some ways, maybe this will be considered decolonization, and it. They very heavily overlap, but I would say that that's totally that sounds like colon, like a colonial setup. Yeah, where the the like there's certain laws and they have different laws, but they're very politically and legally mm-hmm. bound with this government here. And and that's one of the things that these farmers really really want to push towards. Actually, is this idea of getting rid of colonial food systems, hmm. which is specifically and coffee is going to lead men. It's totally a revolutionary plan. Yeah, yeah. and and so and so. What I loved about it was the fact that coffee is used as a way to help small farmers make it in a way that doesn't rely heavily on subsidies or help from the government or kind of anything like that. Like you can do a in a in a lot of what they're talking about in in especially in Puerto Rico is doing selling coffee locally. So to local people, mm-hmm. getting it into local farmers markets and kind of really stepping away from that because a lot of what is happening now with coffee is that the government will subsidize something into the thing, into the farmer, and then it takes a chunk of it away. And then they have stipulations that they have to follow with the coffee and how it's grown and how it's kind of then managed and sold. Dang. And – uh um, so one of the last things that I that I kind of want to – just quick, I'll mention, and then I'm going to talk about some indigenous coffees that you can buy. Um, is kind of what these farmers' goals are um, for the future, and kind of what they hope to achieve. Um, so they want to pursue political and culturally autonomy. Um, 
they want to practice small-scale, locally-focused farming um, using polyculture techniques that avoid chemicals and minimize fossil fuels and nurture social and material connections between Puerto Rico rather than import foods. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that just that themselves is is food sovereignty and really kind of making sure that you and your people are connecting to food in a way that isn't like we were talking about that, that makes you sad, you know, cause I know that a lot of food now that we rely heavily on is filled with these preservatives and stuff that really aren't beneficial for us. Yeah. And coffee's no different, right? mm-hmm. like with the mycotoxins and just the, the, the crappiness of the coffee. Mm-hmm. If it, if it makes you feel like crap, then yeah. Then, uh, do it. yeah. <laughs> and that's a really good point that they the reason that they're growing the coffee is different Mm -hmm. they're not just trying to make money it's it's about something the meaning is deeper than that yeah and even if you're have a weird understanding and you don't maybe think that people can connect to land if you don't think that that's important to people i think that you can connect with people trying to be environmental friendly and Mm -hmm. doing things that are less environmental degradations like that really are trying to be cons- like be conservation and, and try to make sure that for future generations, they will have land. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point and a great way to end the show. I think <laughs> I, and, but before we get into the, what we're grateful about, I'd, I'd really like to stress that point you just made about land and how like some, not everybody may believe in connecting to land. But even if you don't, there's still a lot of lessons that you can learn from people mm-hmm. that do connect to land and do believe in that mm-hmm. because it's going to, it opens up different ways to see things and different data sets, basically mm-hmm. different bits of information that people can understand. So I guess that's why the value of being open-minded, huh? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so what are you grateful for, Annie? Um, so I'm grateful for, I'm going to talk about spotted horse coffee. Um, it's Wynona, oh, nice. um, LaDuke's coffee that she helps. And one thing that I really love about this, um, coffee company is that it is fair trade. It's organic. Um, they focus a lot of Central and South America, African and Indo- Indonesian blends. Mm. So it's a lot of them. But what I really, really like is that a lot of these feature like amazing, indigenous women coffee producers yeah it's contributing to food sovereignty for them Mm -hmm. because then they'll have some more money to start growing manumen and other stuff yeah so and so that's what they do is they buy the green beans and then um they do in oh what what is their reservation red lake uh hmm i'll remember later um yeah and so that's what they do is then they roast it and then they sell it so if you go to winonaladukes.com slash coffee shop you can purchase i think there's four different types of coffee and they are 14 and 15 Mm dollars um but it really ends up supporting these communities that are trying to be small-scale farmers that are putting themselves out there that are really trying to be food sovereign and that's my coffee pot oh is it it's saying that it's about to turn off. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, mm, that, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, there perfect you go. timing. Perfect timing. Yeah, so yeah, coffee's I'm, telling us wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, and so I found this by searching Indigenous Coffee. So if you go online, yeah, do Indigenous Coffee, read their about What's the page. What's name for uh, thing again? Spotted Horse Coffee. Spotted Horse Coffee. Yeah, I'm gonna have mm-hmm. to try that out. Yeah, and um, she has a story behind every single coffee that she has. 
and they have reasons of why they named it that. And it's just really, really cool. And so I ordered some coffee, and I wish it was here today, but it's not. So I'm going to try it out and let everybody know. Hmm. Cool. Well, you know what? I'm I'm grateful for coffee, too. <laughs> but the coffee company I want to mention is different. And they are out of Finland. And they're mm. called, do you, can you guess? Four Sigmatic. Uh, Four Sigmatic. Yeah, that's the coffee that I've given you sometimes. The mushroom oh, coffee. Oh, the mushroom coffee. Yeah. Yeah. And they produce two kinds that I drink. The one is a instant coffee mushroom elixir thing mm-hmm. that is a medium roast coffee mixed with chaga mushrooms. And it's, I really love the flavor of it. And the, they make all, all other coffees, but their coffee is so dang good. And I'd mix it with some butter and some chocolate and mm-hmm. The best way I can think of to describe the flavor is that it tastes like what something that I would want to drink at Christmas, during Christmas. So I think uh-huh. it tastes kind of like Christmas, my idea of yeah. Christmas. The one time I had it, I tasted like buttered toast. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, no, that wasn't that. That was oh. just regular coffee with butter. Oh, it, it tasted like toast. <laughs> yeah. Toast in a cup. <laughs> toast in a cup. I was like, this is really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... We'll, and we'll go and we'll post all sorts of information mm-hmm. for people to follow up on That's if you're more curious about how, how coffee gets processed because there's like three different methods and how it gets shipped and roasted and other things like yeah. that. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you. We appreciate your ears and we appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes, and five stars. Five stars. Just Only because five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah, and you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep, mm-hmm. and we also have a website. Yes, we do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. But if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but indianscienceshow.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. Thank you for lending us your ears. And now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. (laughs) 